I've been enjoying Damrak Virgin during this socially distanced holiday season, a refreshing gin-inspired alcohol-free spirit with distinctive orange and lemon citrus vibes, as well as notes of lavender, ginger and cinnamon. Handcrafted in the heart of Amsterdam in a distillery that dates back to 1575, Damrak Virgin was the highest rated non-alcoholic spirit in the 2020 Ultimate Spirits Challenge. Completely sugar and calorie free, you can enjoy it with tonic and a slice of orange, and it also pairs really well with any citrus-flavoured seltzer. Listeners can download a special Mindful Cocktails ebook from Damrak Virgin. That's D-A-M-R-A-K at the link in the show notes for this episode. Plus, get $5 off when you order on Amazon when you enter the code SOBERCURIOUS. Offer good through end of January 2021. And welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast, a place for conversations about living a more conscious, connected and present life. I'm your host, as always, Ruby Warrington, and my guest this week is Tony Jones, founder of Self Help Book Club, Shelf Help. Such a good name, so tricky to say. (laughs) Tony and I know each other from our days working as lifestyle journalists in the UK an environment where heavy drinking was often expected and a pretty much constant stream of free alcohol was considered to be one of the perks of the job. It was after Tony went freelance a few years ago that she suffered a real crisis of identity and was able to see how her drinking was part of maintaining the persona she thought was integral to her success. She has since gone on to become evangelical about the power of self-help in changing our limiting beliefs about ourselves and the world and working to unwind the habits, including drinking, that are holding us back. And in this episode, we talk about the concept of sober curiosity as a form of self-help in and of itself. She's also been a huge inspiration to me, and has featured in my new book, The Sober Curious Reset, for having the best comeback ever for when somebody asks why you're not drinking, which is simply to throw it back at them and ask, well, why are you? This is Tony Jones. Tony Jones, thank you for coming on the Sober Curious podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. You may not know this, but you've actually been really inspirational to me in the whole of the Sober Curious kind of journey, in a way. I think even before my first book came out, I knew we'd had conversations about you taking kind of like long breaks from alcohol, like longer than the traditional kind of dry January or whatever. And I was just really kind of impressed And it partly goes back to how we met. Now, I've spoken about this (laughs) at live events that we've done together, um, but I'll just kind of like give a bit of background here as well. We met on a press trip. We both have a background in newspaper, magazine, journalism in the UK, a very boozy kind of environment, um, a lot of... I was almost going to say competitive drinking, but it was just, it was, there was, there was a lot of pride to be taken in how much you could drink um, in that sort of world. And I think we both stepped up to the plate in that respect, (laughs) but we met on a press trip to Dubai of all places. um, And it was just so, it was 2007. And for me, that whole trip just kind of epitomized like that pre-crash bubble of just consumerist like excess. We went to Dubai um, for a weekend press trip to check out their shopping festival, <laughs> which yeah, was, was, there was lots of alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And it was as pretentious as it could get really, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. <laughs> it really was so over the top. I think we were all having a little sex in the city moment. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, we drank a lot. Like there was champagne on the plane on the way there. Booze when we arrived, boozy dinners, probably drinks with lunch. And it was just very much like that was fun and it was normal. And I remember even then being impressed with how much you could drink and appear not to be drunk. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever said that to you before. <laughs> but I do. No, but- I think if you'd have said that to me then, 2007 me, I would have really been, yeah, I would have been really like that. I thought that would be a super compliment. (laughs) Right. But I was, I was quite, I was impressed. I was like, wow, she can really go for it. And that would, I would have meant it as a compliment. And Mm. um, I've heard you since describe yourself as being very good at drinking. Yeah. And I think that's probably (laughs) what you meant. Can you, how did you get good at drinking? Um, I, I was doing it for a long time, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I used to kind of say happy hour was my hobby and not, and kind of half joking, kind of not, but I think it's just, alcohol's just always been a big part of my, a big part of my life, probably a big part of my social life. It's been, it's been my social life since I was 13, probably. So like, I, I know you've speak, spoken about this before in the UK, often we'll start drink not we but a lot of people start drinking in their teenage years it's it's kind of, it was kind of normal wasn't it so um, most of my friends and I would go to the park on a Friday night and drink so much that we almost blacked out probably most Friday nights and that kind of for some reason became my kind of definition of fun um, and I think that was partly because there was stuff going on at home that I wasn't loving partly because I wanted to fit in with my friends and then I just kind of carried on that that kind of drinking not in the park. <laughs> I started yeah. going to bars. Um, as I, as you said, we're both we're both recovering journalists. I call myself now. <laughs> and I think um, when you were working at Sunday Time Style, I was working at, at the Sun. So the same overarching company, the same building, very different worlds. <laughs> but yeah, when I think when our worlds kind of collided on that press trip, um, I think free bars and uh, parties, and that was a, that was a perk of the job. So mm. I'd really kind of managed to find a job where um, being able to go out drinking was seen as like a, a really kind of nice part of the job. But then you were still expected to be able to come into work the next day at nine o'clock with stories and write them to deadline and do all the fact checking and, and everything around the kind of being a daily deadline journalist. So um, it was kind of quite a, uh, a badge of honor to be able to go out Monday to Friday, I, mean, I used to have something called Monday Club, which would when we would go into Soho and drink half price drinks on a Monday, which obviously is such a bad idea. <laughs> and, and then I'd spend the rest of the week kind of recovering, but it was okay because it was just another party to go to and we'd just get kind of top up the levels, I suppose. So yeah, got good at drinking because um, it suited me as a 13 year old. And I don't think I ever really checked my habits and I don't think I really ever looked underneath for the reasons until I got to 38. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Olympic standard drinker. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's that like 25 years or 15 years? I can't work it out. My maths is terrible, but yes, I think Deca- decades, of, decades, decades, decades really, of that is- just being the default when I socialize, this is what I do and how I do it. And I don't just drink for the taste of a glass of wine. I drink until I'm drunk. Mm. And that, I absolutely relate to that. And I think many people listening will particularly in the UK, but I feel like that culture is very prominent here in the US as well. So it's kind of like binge drinking is what you're talking about. And then you kind of have these big binges and then you sort of top it up on the days in between to kind of like toggle between the binge days, I suppose. It's interesting the way you're describing um, the kind of drinking culture in that 
world of kind of magazine newspaper journalism I wonder how much things have changed as the media landscape has changed and whether that would still be acceptable because I remember even in our era people like the older generations would look back and like reminisce over oh remember when we used to have the expense account lunches and you know sink three bottles of wine over lunch and that again was seen as what made the job glamorous I suppose in a way there was a certain glamour attached to it Which again, looking back, it's just wild how much we drank and considered it part of our sort of professional identity, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I wonder if that industry, and I don't know if you've given much thought to this, if you were drawn to that industry, partly because it was somewhere where you could kind of um, be celebrated or be praised and um, not admonished for wanting to drink a lot and having that be part of your personality, I suppose. Yeah, possibly, like maybe subconsciously. I think I was more drawn to it because of the high pressure environment. And I think um, working in kind of tabloid journalism for years, I worked for the Mail after the Sun. Um, That's why I need all the self-help, which we'll talk about later. (laughs) But, you know, that kind of, I think I was drawn to jobs where they were quite demanding of me. So I didn't really have any time to think about anything else apart from the pressure of the of the job. And I mean, it's really now obviously knowing more, knowing a lot more about the health side of things, as well as the emotional side, the, you know, the mental health side what a ridiculous thing to do to get to Friday and be so frazzled that you just kind of lose the whole weekend in a blur of booze and no sleep and being bad to yourself and then starting again on Monday. It's like, it's not a, it's not a good way to live. Mm. And especially not a good way to live for 15 years, which is pretty much what I did. Mm. Um, and now I'm at the other side. I mean, it's not the newspaper's fault that I lived like that, but a lot of people lived like that. So I think when you're surrounded by people doing the same as you, it doesn't feel that weird. And sometimes it's only when you step outside, isn't it? Um, but stepping outside is, is the hard thing quite often. Yeah, because it's super seductive, that whole like that kind of um, the whole confluence of those factors. You know, you're getting validation for being for achieving in this very high pressure environment for being able to get up and meet your deadlines and perform your role, even though you're juggling hangovers and then also getting validation for being a quote unquote good drinker, a good drunk Mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, what you're describing is the classic sort of work hard, play hard lifestyle that many of us have been um, sold as kind of like the ultimate dream or the ultimate sign that you're a high achiever, you know, if you can manage both those aspects. But it just seems like you say it's not sustainable, just even the way you're describing it, it just seems inevitable that there's going to be a kind of like a, a breakdown point when it just cannot, can no longer be sustained. Yeah, Did it, of course. So, so tell me a bit about when you, if you, you mentioned how you kind of fell into this drinking culture, which was very much part of the wider culture at the time as well. Um, I mean, we, we both probably came of age with the Ladettes being our sort of like role models for what it meant to be a strong, empowered woman. There was a lot mm-hmm. of alcohol in that whole kind of scene as well. Um, you, you mentioned going into that without really questioning it because there wasn't any space to question it. But when did the mm. questioning start for you internally? When Can you remember when you started wondering, Am I, is this okay? And what were the questions that came up for you? Um, I think questioning part one was when I left full-time journalism to start 
becoming to become a freelance writer but I kind of left and my last full-time job was at the mail um and I think that was probably around 2015 2016 where I left left there and then suddenly I was sitting at home all day by myself which is something I've never done like never in my life I have a massive family I've just gone from job to job um always I'm really lucky I've got loads of friends I've got a big network and then suddenly um I was at home by myself with my own thoughts and that's when the questioning not about drinking started but the questioning about every all the other stuff I suppose um and that's what led me on to getting into self-help reading loads of self-help it really helped helped me in lots of ways and then I wanted to start sharing it um but so the year I launched uh, my self-help book club I turned 40 as well so I was learning all this stuff about kind of self-care, self-love, setting boundaries, respecting yourself. And I was learning it and I was taking it all on board, but I, I was still drinking and I was still sometimes drinking way too much. At my 40th birthday party was in Ibiza and a load of us went out for a kind of four day weekend. And I, and I love it. I still love it. It was still my favorite weekend of my whole life, even more than my wedding. <laughs> and I'm allowed to say that because my husband was there. So it's OK. And I still love it. But it's, it's I think that was quite that was a good illustration of what I thought a, a great weekend was. You know, it's a load of friends, a load of booze, not much sleep and fabulous time or cocktails around the, the pool and all that kind of stuff. And so. At the same time as I was launching this uh, kind of collective, which it's become, and inviting people to come to events and talk about their feelings and talk about kind of what makes them feel good and not and, and behavior, like learning now, I'm just learning so much about behavior and why we choose to do certain things or why we subconsciously are drawn to certain things. So I think for me, there became a tipping point when I just started asking myself, like, would I start almost asking what to treating myself as like that third person <laughs> like so would a person who really cared about her, herself and making an impact on the world spend all weekend hungover no probably not Tony you know would a person who had good boundaries spend time with people who only cared about her if she was partying because I also did have that this i you know, I still do probably to some extent have this um, role that I play with my with my friends, my family often as being the party starter, as being the one who's always bringing people together, getting the drinks in, getting the shots in, where's the after party, all that kind of stuff. So for me to to start to change, to change that and to start questioning that has led to lots of other things, which maybe we'll talk about later. But I think, yeah, the question, the, the tipping point really kind of came when I was asking other people to kind of talk about their behavior, but not able to really reconcile my, my own, if that makes sense. Mm, absolutely. It sounds like there was some maybe cognitive dissonance beginning to form yeah. where you yeah. were feeling like you were being split slightly between these two different Tonys. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you start questioning the gap and like, what is, well, what's what's going on here? Tell me a bit more about then when you left a male, like what you began, what you were questioning at that time in your life, what started your self-help journey? Because that was part... My, one of my questions was which came first mm -hmm. sobriety or self-help and it seems like it was the self-help so what kind of sparked that um I think just I just felt awful I just felt really really low um and I'd never I'd never let myself feel like that before I've I think I've spent most of my life chasing the the high of um happiness and success and busy and doing stuff and traveling and all that kind of which is all great but it, I, I never 
took time to kind of decompress or process anything mm -hmm. so from the from a teenager just racing forward to kind of like it's almost like trying to outrun something and it's almost like I kind of stopped and then everything caught up with me at the same time so I was kind of grappling with this like loss of career identity because I'd always I think in any career like journalism or anything where you there's a kind of ladder and you have you work hard to get to a certain place and then you get to that place and maybe it doesn't fulfill everything that you hoped it might but you're not really sure why and then you kind of earn a bit more money or you get more responsibility or you get to go to more cool parties and all that kind of stuff um, so I voluntarily ejected myself from that situation just because it wasn't it wasn't right. It was it was a toxic environment for me. Um, obviously, you know, I have friends who still work at the mail who it suits them and they and they like that job. It just was a really bad fit for me. But because I didn't have a real understanding of my values or um, where loads of my beliefs had come from, because I had I think I had really bad self-esteem. Um, but I just kind of like driven through it and somehow you can probably relate to this somehow somehow managed to get this job where um, I was kind of leading a leading a team dealing with senior editors who sometimes weren't that nice to me but it's kind of it felt like that was where I belonged and that was what I was good at so to take myself out of that and then be sitting at home and seeing everyone else in in that pool continuing on the ladder I suppose and suddenly I had less money I had less prestige less identity I think I remember I remember going to an event and I had um, a name tag and it just said Tony freelance and, and nobody paid me any attention and I literally had to go and hide in the toilet because I was I was totally crushed because I didn't I'd, all I'd done is spent my whole the professional career saying I'm Tony I work for the sun I'm Tony I work for the mail online and whatever you think about those products because they're quite notorious you know they're quite infamous I suppose they were the biggest in the world at what they did which is why I worked there so I think I'd always had that to back me up um so suddenly when it's just like I'm Tony <laughs> I don't know what I do I don't do anything at the moment it's kind of what I felt like so I've literally spent I think the last four or five years perfecting my pitch which is just what I say to someone that I meet like a stranger or someone in the lift or whatever to make me feel um better about what I do mm. now I'm totally happy I love what I do and I'm I'm still haven't kind of made it concise enough to, to call it a pitch probably but I think um yeah sitting at home and grappling with that loss of career identity less money um friends all doing still carrying on doing whatever they were doing and I had to kind of work out what, what was so bad that, about it? What was, like you said, the di where, why was the dissonance there? Mm. And why did I feel like I had to bring myself out of this? And, and what next? And I, because I really had this feeling as soon as I, whenever I wasn't hungover or drunk, um, I had a feeling of I wasn't living up to my potential. And it was the really, it was there all the time. And I didn't like it because I was like, I don't know what, I don't even know what that my potential is. I don't want to know what, what, what you, what, what I'm supposed to be doing because I can't, I don't think I can deal with it. So instead I would just get hung over for the whole weekend because then I didn't have to deal with the immediate situation and the bigger situation of like, what the hell am I going to do with my life now? Mm. I suppose. Yeah. There's so much that I relate to in there that mm. just that constantly chasing success stemming from a place of real low self-esteem. It didn't feel yeah. like it at the time because I did achieve a hell of a lot on paper by, by anybody's standards, but so much of it, it's almost like that super overachiever kind of straight A student who then 
you know, gets a top job who then can be one of the best drinkers in the office as well, like (laughs) was all just driven from this need to kind of like prove myself basically. And it sounds like you've got a similar thing, which comes from a lack of self-esteem, which ultimately I think comes from a a sort of like a, who am, who am I? Like, what is my place? Hmm. If I'm not Ruby from Sunday times or I'm not Tony from the sun, then like, who am I? Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. obviously, you know, the, the mother of all questions and definitely ties into, I love how you actually were able to identify the fact that when you weren't drinking or hungover, there was this feeling of like, I have, was it like a feeling of I've failed or was it more a feeling of like, there's something out there for me and I'm just too intimidated by it to kind of begin to move towards it? I think it was, it was, it was, it was the latter. It was like, maybe it was a fear that I was going to fail at it, even though I didn't know what it was. Mm. Um, Because I think I'd been so sure that I wanted to, um, that I was so sure I was going to move to London. I'd known that since I was literally probably five years old. So I got there as soon as I could. I was so sure that I wanted to move to New York for a bit. So I went there for a summer, studied journalism. And then I got a job at The Sun, which at the, you know, at the time was the biggest newspaper in the world. I worked there for 10 years. I loved it. And I made some amazing friends. I had loads of good experiences there. And then I decided I wanted to go to uh, work online. So it's like, targeted the biggest online news publication got Mm. a job there Mm. and so it's like I think my friend I just did a Tony Robbins seminar (laughs) virtual one with one of my really good friends which is like so much stuff came out of it but there was when we were talking about some stories and my friend called me an achiever and I took and I and I really took a so achiever to it. with an N, achiever. Yeah. Okay. No, a, no, a, no, achiever. An achiever. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You were like an achiever. No. Oh, she's coming no. up with new words. Love it. <laughs> Maybe that's the book title. A non-achiever. <laughs> she, called, she called me um, an achiever, and I and I didn't really like it, and I and I don't know why because then when we kind of broke it down, she said, "But you've achieved." everything you've wanted and for some reason I didn't I don't like I didn't like the idea that um I felt like that was a bit showy and a bit kind of I don't know a bit um I don't think I didn't think that's what had driven me but maybe as you've pointed out that is what drives people with low self-esteem so I think I'd all I'd already I'd always kind of got what I wanted I've always been able to hustle or manifest that now (laughs) maybe we'll call it that instead um but what I want and so we're to be in a place where I don't really know what I what I'm doing and I've got no direction and it's all up to me now I think how how amazing is that like I can go Mm. anywhere Mm. but at the time it was terrifying to me because I didn't I didn't have a clue and I didn't feel like anyone was able to help me so when did self-help come in and what was the first book that kind of set you on your path of self-help you I feel like you're the self-help guru now I've read a lot I've read them all (laughs) (laughs) I have read a lot of books um you're gonna laugh at the first one though um it's Paul McKenna do you remember Paul McKenna yeah yeah the hypnotist yeah so where we were a bit younger he would have he was we probably remember him being like the hypnotist from tv Mm. because that's how he got famous but prior to that he studied in NLP Mm. and um he did a lot of um work around um self and language and um and self-help basically so he wrote a book called change your life in seven days and I found it in the local Oxfam where I lived in Chiswick West London and it literally was one of those the book fell 
fell off the floor in front of me and I picked it up uh, and it had a CD on the back with a hypnotherapy <laughs> kind of like you rock you are amazing kind of thing and so the book was called uh, how to change your life in seven days and it took me a year to read it because <laughs> I and I read really quickly but I was reading and I just all this stuff I think I tried to pick it up a few times and it and I wasn't ready I wasn't ready there's a few books that I I was drawn to but then they weren't resonating and then and then one time I picked it up and I just everything I read it was just like light bulb light bulb light bulb and also like why don't I know this does everyone else know this is like there am I not in on the joke or am I not in on the kind of did I not get the memo and so everything that I read there I'd then go off and read because that's what we do go off Mm. and research it you know Mm. and kind of Mm. get more information so that book was really my gateway into self-help um very cool but yeah, it's, it's funny because a lot of people don't really imagine him as a self-help author, but I would still recommend the book. It's amazing. it's brilliant and it's a really good um, entry-level book if you're interested in learning about why we do the things that, you know, the things that we do. Mm. What's your, what was your sort of like biggest takeaway from it, from that um, book in particular, that light bulb moment of like, does everyone know this? Two, I think two takeaways. One, how we talk to ourselves matters. It really matters. And I didn't even notice how I spoke to myself before. Um, now I'm able to, I'm a very aware of how I speak to myself and I'm always making sure I try and do it as kindly as possible. But the idea that there's that kind of, that your thoughts are, they're not a command. Like you don't just have to do exactly what you're thinking and or you don't have to feel like that just because your brain's telling you. So the, the fact that, a to become aware of that and then B that we could I could change it that was that was like kind of a super light bulb moment for me mm. um and also the idea of he does talk about the idea of an inner child which I'd never I'd obviously I'd never heard of any of it before so and that still is quite um quite deep self-help I suppose but he talks about it on a quite a top level so um my inner child if anyone is interested <laughs> Um, because he asks you uh, to, to, to kind of picture what this what this child looks like that would be inside you. And mine was black and white, living in a tower with no light, with no food, with no love, with no, you know, in like rags. And, and it was a real kind of like eye opener to me that that's how obviously how I kind of saw myself. So mm. um, very locked away. So all of that kind of like emotion or being in touch with feelings and things like that also thought that was for losers same as I thought sleep was for losers <laughs> you know? um, so yeah it brought it brought up a lot and it helped and then it kind of got me into learning so much more about self-help but at, at the same time because of um, being freelance and feeling awful and kind of or I can't and then I was going out all the time so that mm. was you know obviously it's like then just getting worse and worse you know I'm, I'm really lucky I've got an amazing husband we've been married for 13 years but at that time that's the closest we've ever come to splitting up because I would go away for, go out for weekends and come home on Sunday and think that was acceptable and obviously it's not and obviously that's not going to make me feel better on a Monday morning but at the time it's just what it's the only way I knew how to kind of protect myself I suppose so but at, uh, when I when it was like kind of I hit the low point um, I did start talk therapy for the first time and I used to go in every week <laughs> when I first started I would ask for for homework because I would be like what can I do this week because that's just what how I roll I like the achiever I like a strategy. give me a goal <laughs> the achiever I know <laughs> I like a strategy I like like a to-do list I like things like a plan right and so she'd get she'd say no your homework is to go home and just feel this or sit with this 
And I used to come in um, after a few weeks, I'd come in, I'd say, I read this book. She'd go, okay. <laughs> and then I'd say, I read a new book. And then they're talking about this. And, like, she, and you could see that she was kind of like, just kind of humoring me for a while. And after a while, she was like, the thing is you can read all the books, but it's like, that's just information. It's like, what are you doing with this information? Mm. So um, mm. now it's kind of hilarious. I run a self-help book club. <laughs> I, I really wanted to, one day when I write a book, I'm going to send it to my therapist and say, look, this is what happened. Exactly. It was all research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sounds to me when you describe that in a child, I mean, that must've been a really sort of heartbreaking moment in a way, just to realize that she'd been so neglected. It sounds like neglect is what she was experiencing. And that you, you had found all of these kind of costumes to mm. sort of dress her up in. So that on the outside, it looked like she was living this fabulous life. But then inside, she's still just kind of lonely, um, mm. unappreciated, unseen, uncared yeah. for and untended, untended to. Yeah. Yeah. Ignored, mm. basically. Um, ignored in favor of let's just do go there and do yeah let's just keep getting the external accolades that are going to kind of like keep bolstering my self-esteem and looking back it must make so much sense to you that your drinking kind of escalated in that moment Mm. as well because stripped of your professional identity you still have party girl identity as the kind of fallback yeah if that had always been where you'd got lots of attention connection um praise I suppose validation yeah so what was it like for you when you um when you started, you mentioned that you'd always been the kind of party girl in your family, it sounds like, as well as your friend group. You'd always been the kind of Pied Piper in that respect. How yeah. did that start to, when you started to address your, or you started to sort of like question your drinking and, and that the role that that persona played for you in your life, what were the kind of reactions you got from people? Because that's something that comes up a lot for people who are questioning their drinking. Like, how yeah. is my role going to shift I think it's really difficult because um, it's not it's not their fault that you decide to change and you're making a quite a fundamental shift in in your relationship. You know, there's like there's this energetic contract that we kind of have, isn't there, where I'll be this person, you be that person. And that's why we're friends. So um, obviously, there's some friends that, that and all I did was drink with them. So um I think when I did when I did the hundred days when I wasn't drinking at all, um, I think that was really good because I could actually just it's it was a thing I was doing like a challenge you know like if I was training for a marathon or whatever. But before then, when I it would if I'd have just said I'm not drinking tonight, it just it wouldn't it wasn't accepted you know it's like it was almost like we well, why are you even here? But then equally it. I had to then address the kind of nights I was going on all the time, you know, it's like, and change some, and change some of my behaviors. And if I did have friends who that's all we ever did, then we'd have to either meet in the middle or we're not really friends anymore. And that's, I know people don't necessarily want to hear that, um, that when they make changes, things around them will change, but they, they have to, because, you know, if you want to change how, how you, what your life looks like, then that includes people in it includes what you do on a Friday night includes what you do in the mornings you know it's like so um making a decision not to drink even for a little while I think it's like it's the kindest thing you can do to yourself ever because it's a it makes you able to address all kinds of stuff but equally it is challenging if if you have been the one who's been known to be that kind of you know the party girl I'm pausing this episode to let you know about my new book, The Sober Curious Reset, which is a workbook and self-study program to guide you through 100 days alcohol-free. 
The book contains all of the insights that I've gained from conversations with people just like you about what it means to be sober curious and more importantly, how to actually apply this to your life. Each day of content, therefore, starts with a different sober curious question for you to consider, which might be anything from what am I going to drink tonight instead to what is it I don't want to feel right now, along with a specific teaching on this and an interactive exercise to help you integrate it. Anybody can engage with the Sober Curious Reset, regardless of where you're at on your sober or sober curious path, and you can find it wherever you buy your books. You can also join the Sober Curious Facebook group, where we'll be diving in together starting January 1st, 2021. I hope to see you there. Now back to the episode. On the flip side, so many people who I would say were party people, and that's all we had in common, have since said to me, I want to do the same, or you've inspired me to do the same. Or now we do like kind of wholesome things like go to yoga or... Or they'll, or if I'm not drinking, they'll say, "Oh, great! I won't drink either." It's you know, quite often people are waiting for permission. I'm, I know you found this. I'm sure you found this. It's like people are waiting for that permission for someone else to to because it is changing the status quo in my group of friends and probably mm. in yours before. So some people will go with it, and some people it, don't appreciate it because you're kind of telling them that you don't want to be doing what you've always done with them, and that you're not, you're not up for what whatever they're choices are so I suppose it's it's trying to do it without being preachy or mm. judgmental about them I, mean, I remember I said I spoke to you I think it was an event that you ran when you um launched Sober Curious and it was when I was and I was just done the 100 days and I was feel, feeling really kind of like righteous and virtuous and I was like desperate for people to say to me why 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 don't you drink and I would say to them well, why do you drink <laughs> And I was just, I was in that space of kind of like, you know, I think it's the best thing ever, but it's like, obviously you're really good friends who you've always just had a glass of wine with and not going to appreciate that. <laughs> in quite that director sort of like yeah. confrontational, come on, then let's have it way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was what I made a note of. I do mention that because I just it resonated with me so much. The fact that you had turned that question on its head and, and turned it back around to whoever's asking because it's an absolutely valid question when we think mm. about it. It really is. And it's the sort of mother of all questions. Why do we drink? Like yeah. there are so many answers depending on the individual. And then obviously there's so many sort of like um, social constructs that just push us into drinking without thinking. But yeah, I do mention that in the book. And as you know, because you have a copy there, the Sober Curious mm-hmm. Reset yes, is designed to take people through 100 <laughs> days of not drinking. And I think yeah. actually you were the first person I knew who actually did a hundred days and specified a hundred days. Mm-hmm. How, how did you come up with that idea? And at what point in your journey? So you've left the job, you've hit this kind of low, you've started doing some inner inquiry around what's going on, maybe what you've been running away <laughs> lost, from. Lost the plot. <laughs> lost the plot completely, almost got a divorce. <laughs> um, a staying out all weekend. So how do we get from there to, okay, I'm going to take a hundred days off alcohol. Yeah. So inspired by you actually, and you talking to me about, um, because like you said, I've been, I've actually, I was actually really good at taking a month off or maybe even like two months. So February, uh, January, sometimes going into February or October, sometimes going into November, um, I have also done January, then done a retox party on the 1st of February. So very bad idea. But I think um, 
yeah, you you said you talked to me about uh, the 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 value of going for a stint, like a long enough stint that because we can do anything, right? Willpower for a month is fine, and I used to do that and spend the days kind of counting down until right only one more week left of no booze because I I found I saw it as a real punishment, mm. um, and so a hundred days. I, I just thought that's a, that's a long enough time that I'll have to do stuff. Like I'll, I, I can't just hide at home. And I did it from October, which, which took us in uh, November and December. So that's party season, that's Christmas, that's New Year. That's like the, the cold, dark, you know, wintry months. And, um, and I just thought this is, this is how I, like, I think Russell Brand says in his recovery book, the only way you know how it feels not to, not to be drunk or high is just not to do it, right? <laughs> so it's like, I was, that's why I kind of gave myself the chance Challenge. Also, like I, like I said, like we've established, I like a plan or I like a schedule. So rather than just like, I'm not going to drink and see how it goes. That doesn't work for me. I really need to have like that goal, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the 100 days was in t- the Christmas of 2018. So that would have been after Sober Curious came out. Yeah, It came out that December. So yeah, okay. it came out oh, right yeah. at the end of your 100 days. Yeah, you might yeah, have got so an advanced copy. <laughs> that's that's why, yeah. So yeah. I read Sober Curious and that was a year after I'd launched Shelf Help and Shelf Help was growing. So I was kind of reckoning with this kind of side of me that was drinking at the same time as trying to care for myself more and tell other people to do the same. Um, so yeah, so I started the 100 days and, and you're absolutely right when you talk about these sober firsts and all the things that you do that you have to do the first time. But then once you've done it a few times, it's it's fine. Like I, I, I used to live for Friday nights. I still love Friday nights. They're still my favorite part of the week. Most of the time I don't drink on Friday nights now. So it's like I've been able to switch it around. So then I've, the 100 days for me gave me it stopped it being a punishment not to drink. And it and it started I had to find things to do. I had to find things to do with my friends who were still drinking and where could we be in the middle? I had to find ways to fill my weekends because suddenly I had all this time. Mm. Um, and also because shelf help was taken off and it and it's and it's become so important to me, I equally had something that was filling that that void. So it was like the void, which sounds very dramatic, but it like to me it did feel like that for a while because it's it's like you said, when I when I wasn't working or I wasn't working at the same level I had before, I was still good at going out. <laughs> that just sounds ridiculous, I know, but it's like that was still something I was very good at. You know, now I feel kind of sad that 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 I thought that was something to be good at. But you know, that's like I still I still like to go out. I still love Friday nights, but doing the hundred days was I, I was able to work out different things to do on a Friday night, um, work out different ways to celebrate things, um, go to an airport without having a drink, you know, all the things that you think as a drinker that you wouldn't be able to do or that are going to be so much less fun. And it's just like, they're still fun. You they're know. still fun. They're maybe they're sometimes fun. a different kind of fun or a different like level of volume of fun, but it's yeah. it, they can still be fun. Exactly. And yeah. I think you touched on something as well. I've been, because I've been thinking, why a hundred days? And partly maybe it was inspired by you. But also I think for me, I always noticed that it was after the three month mark when I was taking longer and longer breaks. It was always after about three months, there was this whole other level of just kind of peace or like acceptance Mm. with it and the world and it just kind of felt like oh god how sad that I'd never get to that point if I only ever did a month off or six weeks off or whatever so I feel like I wanted to take people beyond three months just to get into that next zone but the big thing as well is like 
Yeah, a month isn't that long, especially in this current kind of climate where days have just all merged into one and weeks go past in the blink of an eye. Um, but I feel like for a, a month, it's really easy just to almost hold your breath and get through it. Yeah. Just kind of, of hold your breath and get through it. And then the month is done and phew, okay, you can go back to normal. A hundred days, you have nothing, you have no choice but to surrender to it yeah. to an extent and just be yeah. like, okay, whatever will be, will be. I'm just going to do this and go with it and see yeah. how it goes. And, and I think it's like um, like any challenge, isn't it? The, the more you get at the momentum. So once you've done, I don't know, you've done 60 days, there's no way you're going to not get to 100 days, right? Exactly. Most of us. Exactly. Um, obviously, there's always those kind of testing times, but it's mm-hmm. like you start what I start doing and what things like the book is really good for is like it start, you start planning like strategies for tonight's going to be, is really going to test my willpower. What do I need to do to, to stop to not drink you know and it's for me it would be like booking something early in the morning <laughs> or going to see a small child the next day not wanting to feel like a <laughs> yeah. cretin you know so it's like it's just getting and you get to know yourself don't you because it's like um, that's the real you that that's the real you coming out so that's the real you that's a bit shy at a party but still mm. going to the parties mm. that's the real you you said something which I loved, which was when you're sober at a party, you realize you can just go home if you're not having fun. Like, whereas, <laughs> and I was like, that's like a revelation. But before it would just be like, this party sucks. I'm going to have just more drinks and then everyone will be more interesting as will I. Whereas actually when you're not drinking, you think I've got so much other stuff. I could be, you know, spending my time sleeping. doing. I could be sleeping. That I would be better. That'd be nice. Anything else, basically. <laughs> I love how with this whole, this whole kind of sober curious world, some of the best advice is just so shockingly obvious and simple, like Russell Brand's thing. And I talk about that in the first book as well. Like what, how do I stop drinking? You yeah. don't drink alcohol, basically. <laughs> That's just it. And then it's obviously sort of roll on the layers of complexity from there, depending on your situation. But but why did so why did you choose to do October through end of like New Year's? Because that's people might think that that was probably the most bad idea. Like the majority of people would say, well, I'll do from January through March or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think because it it would have been because it was sober October um, and also because of your book, because Mm. that was the time. And so. when I read a really good book, when I read a really good self-help book as well, I just want to do everything in it like now. And it's like, I think that's the power of a good self-help book. It's like, it, you, it makes you want to take action. Like, mm. like my therapist said, like I say all the time to the book clubbers, it's like, we can read all the books, you know, you can watch all the talks, you can listen to all the stuff, but it's like, will, what will you change as a result of reading it? So I think because it was sober October as well, and I probably didn't really think about like that much too far in the future um and then when it came towards Christmas was actually like in my in my memory Christmas was I don't even remember it but don't remember even thinking about booze New Year was the hardest and it's Mm -hmm. and it's the hardest I've ever ever done sober of anything but that's because of course it was there was it's a room full of my favorite people and, and I have this New Year's Eve with the same people every year like we've done it for the last eight years um so there's 10 adults lots of kids now and from the time we get from the moment we get arrive everyone's got a cocktail I'm usually in charge of the cocktails so I made mocktails that year which didn't go down that well (laughs) but it's like you know I put myself in a room full of people who are celebrating New Year's Eve who are drinking of course it was going to be hard but I think because that came at the end of the the three months it's like yeah okay it's going to be hard and that's okay so it's like don't expect it to be easy lean into it 
and the next day you, you can feel completely smug and start the new year feeling awesome so not drinking that night was was tough because everyone else was having great fun but I also had great fun it's just mm. because it, I wasn't doing what I was normally doing mm. but there's um that great quote by Glennon Doyle that loads of people share which is we can do hard things and also my friend Shiru Azadi, who wrote um, a book called The Kindness Method, and she talks that she's an addiction specialist. And her, on her Instagram today, she said, change is, change is difficult. I can do difficult things. It's like we shouldn't always expect it to be easy. But if we can expect ourselves to be able to deal with stuff that's not easy, then that's, that's when it becomes um, something really positive and really that is self-help, you know, that is self-development. So giving yourself that, that space and that opportunity, it's like, it's the best thing you can do. Mm. Yeah. I love the way you described that. And I love that quote from Glenn and too. And it just made me think about, yeah, we have such, we have this expectation that life's going to be easy. And then we're so like, confronted and pissed off and like yeah. challenged when it's not and it's like no life whoever actually guaranteed or said that life was supposed to be easy like it's yeah. just you know we, we we're humans we die we die really easily and every day we're kind of like grappling with that it's come up a lot in my podcast interviews sorry listeners this season I mean I think death <laughs> is just very prevalent for us right and it's like yeah. we're living with that fear constantly as well that's not easy you know so yeah, I think going into it, expecting it. On the flip side as well, one thing I love to tell people when they're thinking about taking a big break from booze is like, expect it to be good. Like expect to enjoy mm. it. Don't expect it to be hard on the flip side, you know? Yeah, but there will be amazing. There'll be, so the, the good stuff will start to come in. And it's so, it's not just about taking the bad stuff out, is it? It's not just mm. about taking this stuff away and being, and feeling that deprivation. It's about putting other good stuff in. So like I was saying earlier before, it's like, I had to learn what to do with my mornings. And now I love mornings. They're like my favorite part of the day. Because of lockdown, I now have like a two hour morning routine. So now if I am hungover, because I do still drink sometimes now, uh, if I am hungover, I'm really pissed off at myself because I'm mm -hmm. just like, this is just, this is such a waste of my like brain. And it's like, I could be doing anything. Like we just said, I could be meditating, could be going for a walk. I could be having a lie in and feeling nice about it. You know, I could, there's, there's a, literally a million things I could be doing better right now. So that the enjoyment of the mornings, the enjoyment of spending time with people, the enjoyment of going to a family party and not being the one that's always hung over and late, you know, all those things you don't, you can't really um, appreciate them until you experience them. Mm. And I think it's so important what you said, like that describing that particular new year's and why it was so difficult. There are so many factors and you probably know quite a lot having studied kind of, you know, how our brains work and what creates change and what's challenging for us and why and everything. But that combination of factors, like the familiarity of this group of friends, the familiarity of the ritual, deliberately making yourself the outsider, they're all like you're layering on the challenges in that just one night yeah. of an experience. But I think it's very true that it's almost like the harder the harder the challenge, the more you're going to grow from it. You must have felt like a superhero the next day. <laughs> yeah, well, I especially did because then there were like nine very hungover adults looking at me as so I swanned in. We all stayed over. We all stayed over. Yeah. Right. So yeah, as they were eat, like eating bacon and loads of crap I kind of was like I've just been for a walk and you know so the thing and the, the difficult thing about New Year's Eve is though you can't leave that party you have to stay until midnight so that is it. so again another challenge but you know like you say it's just once you know if you if you're up for it then once you've once you've done it you do feel like a rock star 
Yeah, and I would also like to add, you can leave the party, but you can physically leave the party. It's still just you saying, I have to stay until midnight. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. (laughs) That part of me isn't not totally gone. (laughs) Okay. No, I think that's great. I think that's really great, you know? So, yeah. So how, so, so you did your hundred days. Did you have a, a retox party at the end of it that time? Or was it a more subtle sort of, hmm, okay, so maybe some deeper shifts have happened now? Mm. Well, I actually, um, I wrote a blog post on it and it was um, 100 days alcohol free, but how will I celebrate? Because mm-hmm. um, you just touched there on the idea of ritual and New Year's Eve, obviously, it's like, you know, a big celebration. And I really, I still associate booze with a celebration, I think, and, you know, that, 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 that has been a shift from booze becoming more fun, maybe, than just doing something to, to blot, blot out all the time. But I, that was my most popular blog post ever because so many people, I think, were kind of like, yeah, great. I do a bit of booze free time, but then what, how do I celebrate? And I actually didn't want to go to the pub and I didn't want to celebrate by undoing all the good work. Mm. And I didn't, I think I said in the blog post, I, I, quite frankly, I don't want to celebrate by uh, all that good work by pouring poison into my body. <laughs> that was obviously when I was feeling all righteous. <laughs> um, but it was like, you know, I've learned, I, I've obviously read a lot about um, about alcohol, about what it does to the body and, you know, and brain and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, how can I, knowing how I feel now and having just done all that work and knowing what I know about what booze does to the body, like why would I then run and like run out and drink a lot drink my head off and undo mm. all that good work mm. so I think um I probably didn't even drink for maybe 120 days 130 days but I just stopped counting after 100 because that had become my new normal mm. and then I probably kind of slowly started drinking maybe on a Friday night it would have been I'm sure at a friend's birthday and then um yeah and then I've been I've been to festivals since where I've drank a lot more than I probably mm. would like like to say um but now um it it did fundamentally change my relationship with booze Mm. I'm really I know I think you say um it's something about are you moving away from pain or into there's something you say and I'm trying to remember I wrote it down I'll say that bit again well it's like are you drinking to experience more pleasure or are you drinking to numb your pain this is it this is a quote this is a quote I had from you um (laughs) so like like you say are you drinking to have more fun or less pain and then my friend Sheru says, are you drinking to get into it or out of it? Mm. And I think my shift has been um, like sometimes I want like, I might want to feel more spacey or silly or sexy or whatever. Um, and then I'll have a drink like I treat drink, drink like drug, like a drug, mm. which is what it, is, it is, as you yeah. talk about all the time. Mm. So it's like, do I want to change the do I want to change my state of mind? Like if and if I do great there's like a whole supermarket full of stuff that will help me do it and but be conscious about that right and if I don't then what am I doing like why why am I wasting the calories and the brain cells and the money on something that's just going to make me feel worse so Mm. um I think my my relationship with alcohol now is all about um is it going to enhance my experience um you know and usually the answer is no and if is it is it because I feel pissed off bored tired stressed worried if it's any of those things, I will usually now not have a drink and do something else instead. Mm. Um, you know, that kind of riding out the cravings. I don't really have massive cravings, but it's not the actual booze. For me, it's it's more about the event or it's about the fact it's Friday night or it's about the fact it's a certain friend or a certain event or whatever it is. So I think um, 
yeah, being able to be conscious uh, about why I'm choosing to drink has been one of the one of the biggest shifts, mm, which is huge. And that's what we don't develop when we start drinking at 13. How could we possibly go mm. and begin our drinking life at age 13 or 14, which is around? I think I was a little bit older, 14, maybe 15. How could we possibly like have the kind of like self-awareness or the yeah. intellectual capacity even to enter into a relationship with alcohol from a conscious place at that point, which means then we're tasked later in life with going yeah. back and kind of undoing it all and sort of putting it back together, putting the pieces back together in a way that works for us. I'm really curious about the kind of responses you got when you say to people, like, why are you drinking? Did it happen? Like, did people actually get into the conversation with you or was it just like, a, oh, fuck off, Tony? <laughs> yeah, generally. People don't want to have that conversation. Right. And usually, do you know what? And usually um, if it's, it's, it's usually strangers. It's not my, my friends now uh, fully don't, don't expect me to drink on a night out. And yeah. I think at the beginning it was difficult because you asked before about kind of, you know, the reactions or whatever. At the beginning it was more difficult because it was something totally weird and new. Now, because I've been doing this like on off, sometimes I'm drinking, sometimes I'm not, um, uh, because I've been doing that it's it's become totally normal so that like anything it gets easier doesn't it and gets less mm. awkward the more that you do it so mm. there is always a sober first of having to say oh I'm not drinking tonight I mean there's still I went on holiday on, in September to Italy with um with a really good friend and he was like Aperol is a euro it's just you know wine is literally made around the corner and I said oh it's September so I'm not drinking so it could which which is helpful because it's like it's September which means I'm not drinking um and he was and he literally said I will break you <laughs> and this is like a really good friend and I and he didn't break me and I just used to like pop pour like top up their rosé around the pool have my San Pellegrino whatever and and last time I saw him, he said, oh, I'm not drinking this month. And mm. I thought, oh, interesting. interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that leading by example. I think it's the best way to really kind of encourage people to give it a go. If there is anyone in your life that you think could benefit from taking a break, just being really good at not drinking is a yeah. great way <laughs> to inspire others, I think, to do the same. So Quitlet has obviously become its own sort of like self-help genre now. There are so many books out there yeah. that are about quitting drinking and about, well, there's all sorts of recovery memoirs and anything you could really want to read about in that space is sort of out there now. And what are some of the other books that you've read in that genre? Are there other books that you've read and found inspiring in that genre? Yeah, um, I've read quite a few, uh, quite a few of them. Um, mm -hmm. What works for me or what's really um, helped me is the books about what, what it does to your body and what mm -hmm. it does to your brain, mm -hmm. because I think that's my kind of interest. Like the recovery memoirs, I'm not really in, not so interested in those. I don't know. Um, I don't think the experience of other people's journey is not what is going to inspire me to stop drinking. And I don't know why that is, but like the books I've really, really benefited from were Jason Vale, How to Kick the Drink Easily because that's a lot about brainwashing that you talk about and the Annie Grace book again. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I find that more interesting because it, I feel a bit like, oh, I've, I've really been conned into, as is everyone else being conned into thinking drinks cool. So mm. I think those kind of books um, I really like. Russell Brand's recovery, I love just because it's um, it's him and it's his style. And it's a real, I think it's a good book for people to read who are kind of like just thinking about it, you know? Mm. Um, David Nutt, the, the, um, who was oh, yeah. the one time, yeah, he has a book out now and I wrote it down to get it right. It's called the new science of alcohol and your health. And it's really interesting because it's kind of like a journey 
through from your from the first sip what alcohol is doing like how mm. it's affecting your brain you'd be really interested in it because it's like mm. what chemicals is it releasing because once once I, I knew that I mean, we all know that once we had a few drinks, we want more drinks. But it's like, yes, because booze is chemically designed to do that. So it's like you can't instead of fighting it, just don't drink it. Right. Or feeling like there's something wrong with you or you're so weak because you can't resist it or you can't only stop at one. Exactly. Yeah. Like the three drink rule. It's like, what a joke. Has anyone ever stuck to the three drink rule? No, because it's like once you're once the alcohol's flowing, your body is is going to chemically start you wanting to have more mm. so um mm. I really love those books I love Sober Curious because I love the mix of spirituality and and again the actual science behind it all um I love the kindness method because that's mm. about that's looking at the reasons behind addict your addiction mm. and at the moment I'm really as well into books about um like by people like Gabor Mate and Johan Hari which are like about why people get addicted to things in the first place. Um, so a lot more about trauma and kind of, you know, early life experiences and and that so and that kind of um yeah, what what why why the brain changes and um why it starts to change, why booze is used, you know, why why drugs are really um helpful to some people and what we can do to try and stop that. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think those are the kind of quick lit books I love I also really love in the UK we have um something called one year no beer Mm. um and that's like it's it's an organization now but it's a real it's a real celebration of not drinking and it's I think it was started by it started by two guys so it's 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 quite uh, it's a great one for for blokes because it's more about it's a challenge so like the 100 days I suppose was a challenge wasn't it that Mm. was we set ourselves or is a challenge that we set ourselves Uh, but then I think one year no beer is good because it's like people are kind would would respect the fact that you're saying I'm not drinking for 28 days because I'm doing a challenge and then that there was that kind of like the psychology of that is that it's it's something positive to do for yourself um rather than um a recovery or a kind of like talking about the deprivation of not drinking Mm. it's something else it's another goal or something to kind of like another thing to achieve I suppose isn't it speaking about achievement (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's a word it can be (laughs) no but I like the, the books you've you've picked out it sounds like you've taken quite a practical approach in a way Mm. rather than not I don't know I feel like a lot of the sort of more memoirish books are more about connecting to the other person's experience and sort of using that to to inform your own experience or to be able to relate to someone else but you've taken a very practical approach which I think like you say I think the best self-help does it gives us tools like it gives us actionable things that we can actually apply to our lives you know um and so yeah I kind of wanted to ask you a bit about that maybe just to finish up how can we make the most of self-help how can we really help ourselves like perhaps there are people out there who are like you know I read so many books and you know my life's still just the same I just don't ever think I'm going to achieve the things that I want to or I don't think I'm ever going to get to a point where I actually have that breakthrough that I'm looking for or mm. get that aha moment or whatever it is. What do you think is the best way for people to engage with self-help and then to actually kind of make it applicable to them and their lives? Um, I think the idea of getting curious is relates to all self-help. So um, obviously here with relation to your, rela- uh, your relationship with booze, but just getting curious as to um, why 
if you want to change your behavior or if you want to change the way you feel about something, it's like, why do you, what, what does that behavior serve? Like, why do you do certain things? Why do you mm. feel a certain way? So it's like getting curious and kind of like getting, getting quiet, getting curious, learning about yourself. Um, like for me, all self-help really starts with self-esteem. So it's like for anyone who is just who thinks they're not getting anywhere, it's like literally go back to basics. It's like, do you like your life? Do you like yourself? Like if the answer to those will probably be very similar. If you like your life around three, you probably like yourself around three as well out of 10. Um, so it's like, OK, so what, what's that about? So you're not going to be able to. You're not going to be able to live this dream life or get this dream promotion and or you might, but you're not going to do it in a fulfilling way unless you address those quite simple things to start with. So for me, yeah, working on self-esteem, working on self-care, like, are you getting, are you sleeping properly? Are you eating properly? Are you, are you looking after yourself? You know, because, because if you, if you're not taking care of yourself, then the rest of the stuff doesn't take care of itself either so mm. for me I didn't care about my body like when I was drinking and working and partying I didn't care about my body at all because and I didn't care about myself so since I have started I kind of I'm very much in my head so I'm trying to learn to be more in my body but obviously I got into self-help through the head reading mm. learning all that talking all that kind of stuff um but then learning about kind of like liking myself more, then I've started taking better care of my body. So that kind of goes hand in hand with the not drinking, I suppose. Mm, I love that. And I think, yeah, and coming back to self-esteem, I think so many of us have got low self-esteem. Actually, if you take away all of the kind of external stuff that we pile on top to make ourselves feel better. And I think that's one reason that the, you know, self-care has become so popular because in a way that's a way like self-care and boundaries. I think those are two great things to start with Yeah. <laughs> in terms absolutely. of just showing. And it's not about like indult being self-indulgent or I don't know, letting yourself off the hook or whatever it is that people might um, throw as criticisms around the idea of self-care in particular. These are literally ways that you can show yourself that you value yourself. Yeah, which like is self-care. how you build self-esteem, which ultimately is then how you're able to stand up for yourself, which is ultimately then how you're able to stand up on behalf of other people and the things you care about as well. You can't, yeah. you can't hope to, um, you know, be an activist or like make a difference in the world if you don't have self-esteem ultimately. Yeah, totally. And self-care isn't, isn't always the super kind thing to yourself. Yes. It's not like the kind thing sometimes would be eating the whole box of donuts, right? Because that's just what you want to do and you feel crap. And that's going to help you feel better in that moment. But real self-care is thinking about what you want to be feeling, you know, doing, being in a week's time, in a month's time, in a year's time. And what what changes do you need to make now, you know, to make that happen? Mm. So yeah, self-care leading to self-esteem. And um, one thing I have to say as well is accountability. Like self-help obviously is all about looking at the relationship with yourself and making that better. But the reason I started the group is because I wanted to find some new friends to talk about it with and kind of, you know, does anyone else know about these amazing you know, things that I didn't know? But actually what's happened is it's, it's turned into this community because people are benefiting so much more when they're talking about self-help with other people. So mm. it's like, it's become this kind of team sport. So to have an accountability partner, it's like, it's like any goal, isn't it? If you, if you tell somebody that you're going to not drink for a hundred days, you're something like 65% more likely to do it. 
You know, so it's like if you tell somebody you're going to read a book about anxiety, then action some of the exercises and that other person's going to do the same. The likelihood of you actually reading the book and actually doing the exercises just goes up exponentially. So um, mm. although it's self-help, finding self-help buddies is like it's it's really kind of um, cements the learning and it really supports you. And when you're able to support someone else as well, that's an amazing feeling. So then that that bolsters the self-esteem again, really. Mm, mm. And it all just kind of like keeps growing and becoming stronger. So where can people find you and find some potential self-help buddies? Perhaps if they're like, oh, Lord, no one in my friendship group is going to be into this stuff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most people that come to self-help are like that, actually. Right, they come, really? they come, yeah, they come to find some new friends. But that's right. cool because there's loads of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we have um, we're on Instagram and Facebook, shelfhelp.club. And then I also have a membership now, which is um, we go through a new book every two months and we read it as a group and we have virtual meetups. Um, and share lots of content so uh, like whether it's I know some people aren't up for reading a whole book but we'd share TED talks or like we'll I'll interview the author or um, we used to do real life events not at the moment but um, hopefully they'll be coming back mm. so yeah shelfhelp.club website and Instagram and um, just come and check us out and there's all different ways that like you can get involved love it thanks so much Tony thank you thank you for having me And thank you as always for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review on iTunes to help more people find this series. This podcast is edited and features original music by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com. 